Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm. At Qualcomm, inventing comes first. The rest of the world innovates on top of Qualcomm's foundational inventions. To learn more, visit qualcomm.com slash we invent. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as a leader, not a follower, unless you're Chrissy Teigen, whom I would follow anywhere. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Nancy Kane, a historian at the Harvard Business School. She spent 10 years writing her latest book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times, which seems so pertinent right now. It examines the rise of five leaders who had to overcome a crisis, including Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Rachel Carson, and shows how their stories might inspire us. We need a lot of inspiration. Nancy, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Kara. So, so tell me how you got to be the historian of Harvard Business School. How does that happen? You know, it way led on to way, as Robert Frost would say. I uh-huh. graduated from Harvard's history department and got a chance to apply as a lecturer at Harvard Business School, and mm-hmm. I just thought, Hell, that sounds really interesting. I don't know anything about business, but I'll figure it out. And I, I went, just, mm-hmm. you know, leapt over the cliff. Wait, what history would you, were you studying? B- believe it or not, I started off as a graduate student. I was a graduate student, and my dissertation was about 18th century England and what were, <laughs> what were the British ministers thinking when they did things like the stamp tax? Right. Oh, wow, the stamp tax. That's a that's a That's a kind topic. of a stretch from like the yeah. Harvard Business School, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And I ended up there, didn't know what an Why income— Why were you interested in that? I'm going to go back. Just, why were because you Because I wanted tax? to understand how intelligent, educated people in Whitehall mm-hmm. could be looking to the West and thinking such very different things than people like Patrick Henry or Benjamin Franklin right. or Thomas Jefferson of were thinking. Of course, didn't end well for them. Right. And, and, and talk about disruption that was unintended. I wanted to understand where did that unintended disruption come and from? And where was the decision-making around it? And what was the what were the choices they made? And they had no idea. People mm-hmm. like George Grenville, who authored the stamp text, they had no idea that what they did was going to cause such a firebomb mm-hmm. in places like Boston, you know, or, or Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they were just, they were trying to raise revenue. They were right. doing something and not close down the government right. in Whitehall in 1765 and keep a far-flung empire afloat. Right, right. So it was unintended consequences. Completely. Right, So I was knowledge. fascinated by that, how right. good intentions cause such very big surprises. So that's what I had written about when I got hired to go teach business history. Business history. At the Harvard Business School. And, and that's something that people, history is not something that businesses look at very much. No, no. They, they do don't not. remember anything. They, they think well, they do, but they don't. That's right. A, you know, a few CEOs will tell you candidly that on their nightstand are biographies, mm-hmm. and they're serious. They read right. them and they try and learn from them. But no one goes to the Harvard Business School to study history. Mm-hmm. And very very few leaders that I've coached over the years spend a lot of time thinking about the past and what mm-hmm. it might teach us about the present. Um, but the Harvard Business School at that time in the early 90s had a very robust cottage industry called business history. And mm-hmm. where it became very valuable is in your turf, Kara, in your, in your domain, because 
What we did in that in the course I started teaching, a second-year course, 450 MBAs took it in 1993, 94, 95, mm-hmm. is try and understand the rhymes of past industrial revolutions with, with, with what was then being called the computer revolution that became, right, the smartphone revolution that became the digital revolution. So a lot of students were looking at John Rockefeller and saying, hmm, is Rockefeller like Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. by, by 2000, right, right? right? Can we understand what some of these new pioneers in, in the digital frontier are doing by understanding what other pathbreakers did? So it mm-hmm. actually was a very popular class. Mm-hmm. And in the process of teaching it, I learned a hell of a lot about organizations, mm-hmm. business, and, and entrepreneurship, which is where I spent the bulk of my time was actually teaching Right. We're going to get to entrepreneurship and what historically what makes one, because I think there are commonalities in a lot of things. But one of the things that's striking about the tech we're going to focus more on the tech industry, is the lack of interest in history. Yeah. Lack of interest in thinking that they're breaking new ground almost all the time and that there aren't any lessons to be learned. You know, I, I'm, I'm flummoxed by that, but I'm, you know, I'm an outlier. I'm a historian because I can't, I can't read history. I can't discover a new moment. I was just reading a Teddy Roosevelt speech from 1910 and realizing everything he's saying about daring greatly mm-hmm. and moving into a new arena is relevant mm-hmm. to new businesses, mm-hmm. right? Act, even mm-hmm. community activism today. So, you know, Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself but sometimes it does rhyme. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't understand why someone that's in a brand new industry or a relatively young industry isn't fascinated right. by other folks that were in young industries before them. Because, you know, the old, I can't remember, said there's nothing new under the sun. It's a famous quote. Uh, it's a, from the Greeks, essentially. But they feel like there's, everything is new under the sun, that they're doing things that have never been done or that they have to kill the past. I think that's really part of it. Or they don't, if they're, if they're pulled down by the past, that will start hinder them from future progress. Maybe, but that's a kind of dangerous naivete, I think, or maybe it's hubris. We're we're brand new and we're cool, but that's hubris because it's, it's, one, it's not true, and and second, right, those that don't know the past are doomed to repeat its mistakes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's no question. We see that over and over and over, and so, you know, if I were advising almost anybody in in your neck of the woods, it'd be pick up a biography of a, Mm -hmm. you know, of of a pioneer. Right. Right. A business pioneer, if you want, and learn from what he or she learned, and you know the mistakes they made and the the grounds they they plowed, because mm-hmm. that's where the gold is for mm-hmm. today. Right, where you can learn lessons. Uh, we'll get to the, those who they should look at in a second. But so you so you were doing historical research on just leadership. I was doing. I, w- I went to the Harvard Business School. wasn't supposed to spend more than two years there, but co- mm-hmm. got infected with the pragmatism of the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I began writing a book called Brand New: How mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs Earn. Consumers trust from Wedgwood to Dell, uh-huh. and I got really interested, Kara, in these stories of these six entrepreneurs who had basically won on the demand side. Mm-hmm. That is, someone like Howard Schultz, who mm-hmm. didn't have any proprietary technology, but figured out before you and I knew we needed a double tall latte to begin mm-hmm. our day, that consumers wanted that, and so competed on the demand side. Mm-hmm. Or someone like Michael Dell. I mean, his game wasn't really a game of you know no, technological innovation. No, it was about assembled. it was about consumer customization and then creating the value chain to support that. Right. So I was fascinated by people that could build competitive advantage in a, in a relatively new market Mm-hmm. And that got me interested in the in the curious, right, alchemy 
both inside and out of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time teaching entrepreneurs, advising entrepreneurs, being involved in some startup companies uh, that came out of the Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School has a lot of actually fans in Silicon Valley. Francis Fry is there now. You bet. You bet. And there have been a lot. And and even though we're in Boston, you know, our necks are craned west, Mm -hmm. right, a lot of the time. Right. Um, And so it was a very, very interesting way station along my intellectual and and -hmm. personal journey uh, to try and understand what make what make what makes entrepreneurs tick, right? And and how do we understand right their impact? And that led me ultimately into leadership because as you and your listeners know really well, it's one thing to start a company; it's mm-hmm. another thing to build the organizational right. capabilities Certainly. you you, you need to keep it to right. keep it sustainable and vibrant. And so that work on brand new brought me into the curious, often cliche, mm-hmm. often you know kind of eyes-glazingly cliche <laughs> field of leadership. Right. And I, so I was determined as a historian to say, can I figure out something gritty and serious and accessible to say about leadership? And that took me to this new book, which took right. forever and a day to write, called mm-hmm. Forged in Crisis. Right. And and one of the things, uh, before we get to talking about the book in the next section, when you think about that, there is a, a sections of entrepreneurship, and that's one of them. One is the first idea and the persistence, and we're going to talk about what commonalities exist. But then it is the actual leadership, because I have seen so many companies that I've covered falter at that moment, like even even a promising idea. Like you think of Dell, right. leadership. Yeah. You know, it's always a crisis of leadership in, in some way, or allowing leaderships to um, I was just thinking about, I just asked a question of a Facebook executive. They had enough irritants on, in the leadership yeah. because they all agreed with each other. Exactly. And maybe that's they a great, That's to, a great you know, way of thinking and about so, it. And they, were like, and they didn't want, even want to think about that. And I was like, wow, you're not even thinking about it. You know what I mean? It was an interesting, it, 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 they weren't being hostile or anything like that, but they felt like getting along was great. And I thought getting along in this instance led to what the problems they're having. So it was a really interesting um, thing. But you the, people don't look at... Um, the way we build leaders in tech as leadership as being the most important part of it, which is interesting. They look at the entrepreneur part of it. They do, and and particularly the founder piece. Mm -hmm. So if you think about founders that have successfully made the transition, right, from a founder to an institution builder, right? There aren't very many, but if you think about them, they're mostly men in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. but that have also had to transform themselves at Mm -hmm. some very fundamental level because the things that take you into the the successful IPO are not the same qualities within yourself that bring you to a place where I'm going to create a company for the ages. Right. I think you could just say Gates, Bezos, and uh, Jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I might say Howard Schultz as well at Starbucks yeah. at a low tech industry. He wasn't a founder though, right? Right. I'm talking about early founders. Ab- those are good. Those are good examples. But right. there, there are three out of I don't know you scores of yeah, people. Yeah, it you, often you is, keep and, tabs and on. some of them do step aside. Like Piero Midiar stepped aside at eBay and made way for a better leader, which was interesting. Smart enough and adult enough to do that. Most of them aren't. They they just grow in the job and grow badly. Um, I think Zuckerberg has tried, has tried, and will eventually transform himself. I mean, he has obviously as the most important company and most valued company in Silicon Valley. But I think that his struggle towards leadership is still ongoing, which is interesting. Yeah, I'm sure you're right, just from my own mm-hmm. knowledge as someone kind of from the outside thinking about how what's happening to these individuals. I think Jeff Bezos is a very interesting example because in the last three years, it seems to me, particularly in the last two years, you see someone that at least 
for, for outsiders looking in, is is trying to or seems to be trying to establish an external footprint, not just for his company, mm-hmm. but also for himself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's more than buying the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about someone now that's saying, hmm, there's, there's a bigger kind of cape I have to wear, mm-hmm. you know, a larger mantle mm-hmm. that I think exists on, on, on my shoulders in this company and, mm-hmm. in the, in, and in the imprint of the company. It'll be very interesting to see how that, yeah. how Jeff Bezos steps out, so to speak, and, you know, expands. Well, I think he's very deft. He's very, well, again, I was saying to an earlier guest that he's an adult. <laughs> it, it's easier when you're an adult and when you don't start from uh, early on uh, having, what happens in Silicon Valley, and we can talk about this, is that people, uh, you know, they get licked up and down all day. And and they suddenly transform themselves into a different person because of the negative uh, attention that they get. Well, you know, what's interesting to me about Bezos that fits, you know, as a corollary to what you just said, Kara, is that he's always had a kind of, again, from the outside looking in, I've, or from, the, from the outside looking at him, I've never met him, a kind of emotional forbearance. So he's not someone who's felt the need to necessarily download his reactions. He's been, it seems to me, He's deft. an adult. Like, I don't know how else to say it. He was old when he started. Yeah. Like, he was older when he started. A lot of these people are kids, and they aren't fully formed, and therefore get sucked up into bad behaviors or or, or arrogance in a way that's really damaging. And they never recover from I, I You don't see a lot of it. But we'll get into that in a second. So you became the historian, and you just and, and, and what you do now is you, you talk about historical, you look at historical leaders or entrepreneurs. Uh, I, I'd have to— the interest at Harvard, the entrepreneurship? There's a big interest in, a huge interest in, you know, kind of how do I launch myself into an entrepreneurial path? Mm -hmm. And and there's a big interest in, if I'm going to do that, how do I grow myself Mm -hmm. into someone who's an effective leader? Our Mm -hmm. students often see those things refreshingly as being connected. Um, How how able they are to execute on, on that charge mm-hmm. they put before themselves, a more open question. So I, what I do now is teach, uh, until recently, until this year, when I'm teaching a course on the emotional awareness of mm-hmm. leaders. Oh, that would be nice. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. From the ground up, from nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. very critical stuff. I have taught a big course called Power and Glory in Turbulent Times, uh-huh. the history of leadership from uh, Henry V to Steve Jobs, and mm-hmm. we end with a case on Mark Zuckerberg and a case on Steve Jobs. Wow. And we study not just their business accomplishments or their business uh, mistakes, but they're the arc of their life. So mm-hmm. we get a sense of how, who did these people grow into with mm-hmm. the assumption or the uh, or the achievement of great power and yeah. influence. And so it's a course in, in for the students in, hmm, what do I learn about myself from looking at Estee Lauder mm-hmm. or Martin Luther King or Steve Jobs mm-hmm. or Catherine Graham, who's mm-hmm becomes a real heroine to a lot of my female students who don't know about her. So it's a really interesting course to teach, to watch the students grapple with the biographies and then try and cut and paste from those onto their own sense of themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, we're talking with Nancy Keene. She has written a book. uh, She's a Harvard professor. Is that Harvard Business School? I'm a tenured professor at the Harvard Uh, Business Business School. School. Um, And she's uh, spent the last 10 years writing her latest book, Fortune Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. It examines the rise of five leaders who've had to overcome a crisis. When we get back, we're going to talk with her about the book and what are the aspects of leadership and also what uh, has to change from an entrepreneur to become a leader in a sustainable business. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm. At Qualcomm, inventing comes first. When they connected the phone to the internet, Qualcomm's foundational inventions created the mobile revolution. And now as Qualcomm leads the world to 5G... 
Their inventions will enable new industries and the next great product the world can't live without. Qualcomm is inventing the tech the world loves. To learn more, visit qualcomm.com slash weinvent. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who did you talk to this week? Hey, Kara. Secret Kara is actually in Mexico as I'm talking to her right now. Kara, this week I talked to Mitch Lowe. He is CEO of MoviePass. MoviePass is one of the most interesting companies to crop up in the last year or so. Um, Lots of people have heard about it. You get to go see basically as many movies as you want for $10 a month. How can that work? Many people have questions. So did I. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation about that and Mitch's previous life as a Netflix and then Redbox employee. It's a good conversation. You will like it. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We're here in the red chair with Nancy Keene, a historian at Harvard Business School. We're going to be talking about her book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. So, Nancy, you looked at five leaders around uh, leadership. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Rachel Carlson. I don't know who the other two were. You can talk about them. But I want to start first is talk about the importance of leadership and what it means, because I think it gets twisted around in It does. Society. Again, it's become such a cliche, right, mm-hmm. that we're just bored hearing the word, especially right now, given mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the schoolyard, right. you know, mudslinging that goes mm-hmm. for national governance. Um, so I, I use a definition in the book that I stumbled on many years ago from David Foster Wallace, the American writer. And this was from a an essay you wrote about the first John McCain presidential campaign, he said real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the, the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. I think that captures a whole lot mm-hmm. about leaders in all kinds of fields, mm-hmm. companies, movements, governments, you know, religious institutions. So this book is about about individuals who made themselves in mm-hmm. the midst of astounding volatility while they were right. down on their knees screaming at the sky mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in confusion, made themselves into those kind of people. Sure. And sure. they did it over and over again. So one of the things you're going to get forged in crisis, I mean, I think that's where most leaders are for, right? I think Absolutely. that's how we, that's our cliche of leadership for yep. sure. So let's talk about the, the leaders you looked at. And and I know people, I don't like to say commonalities in leadership because I, I think that's probably another canard, that there's commonalities in leadership. There's lots of ways to be a leader. I think we have a vision of a leader, of course, sort of a strong white guy hero um, or someone who's firm versus other ways to lead. Um, So talk you picked the leaders you picked. I want to know why. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Rachel Carlson. Who were the other two? So so – Ernest Shackleton mm-hmm. is the is the opening story. He's yeah. fourth of the five, mm-hmm. an Antarctic explorer whose ship went down yes. off the coast of Antarctica. Many books have been written about right? him. Um, and has to get his men home. And then the, the, the fifth person is the least well-known in the book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a clergyman, a pastor in Germany when the Nazis came to power in 1933 and becomes immediately a member of the resistance to Hitler and gets more and more radical in mm-hmm. his resistance as the— noose of Nazi evil titans, mm-hmm. and be, and by 1939 has joined a group of double agents within the Nazi government working to assassinate Hitler in mm-hmm. order to overthrow the Third Reich. So mm-hmm. his story is not as well known, but it's an astounding story mm-hmm. about resistance and being true to your muscles of moral courage mm-hmm. as an authoritarian, increasingly dangerous leader and his government mm-hmm. take hold. Mm-hmm. Let's start with him. I mean, what what caused that to happen? What is why Talk about the qualities of leadership and what forged him? So what forged— Because a lot of people don't didn't see it coming. They don't. No, right, or, they, people, or they cook slowly. Let's they just, cook slowly. He, right. he refused to, to, to 
not admit that the lobster or the animal of goodness was boiling very rapidly in mm-hmm. the pot. Right. He could see right away because mm-hmm. the Nazis, as some of your listeners will well know, actually were very quick in doing a whole bunch of things. Yes. Cutting, sh- closing down civil liberties, you know, getting rid of privacy laws, mm-hmm. burning books within mm-hmm. six months of taking power, mm-hmm. announcing all these restrictions on Jewish right. business and other kinds of activity. It was clear they were going to have enemies of the state and all kinds of people were in trouble because of it. Bonhoeffer Offer just said, look, these, this man and what he represents and the people that are supporting him mean terrible trouble, not only for Germany, but he's a warmonger and there's going to be a big conflict. Mm-hmm. And he just set to work trying to educate other people in that same vein. And what's so interesting and ultimately important for our moment in the story is how as the noose of power tightens, people can see, see what's happening, but they're like, and they put their hands over their eyes and say, I'm not going to get involved. Right. Right? I'm going right. to allow this to right. be so I can be safe because I'm scared mm-hmm. if I stand up. So one of the really interesting lessons is how do you find right the chutzpah and the grit mm-hmm. and the, the self-motivated fuel to keep on resisting? And how do you bring others along on that journey? And interestingly, Kara, to something you said earlier, this was not a hard-charging, super aggressive, celebrity kind of guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he breaks a lot of our kind of Mm -hmm. false and Mm -hmm. dangerous kind of myths or preconceptions about leaders. He's He's articulate, Mm -hmm. he's serious, but he's a quiet person. He's a kind person. Mm -hmm. He's, um, and he is, and he is increasingly trying to develop his own muscles of courage because he's, he's scared Mm -hmm. and he's trying to figure out how do we stay clear, stay under the radar of the Gestapo and the SS while I try and figure out what in the hell we're going to do against this increasingly obvious madman. And last but not least, how am I going to, how am I going to keep my eyes open to what's really happening? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, almost a primer for those serious citizens today that want to be aware and active in a way that, 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 is, that is consistent. Right. Well, how do you imagine he thought that was a serious time and others did not? What, I think, what is within him that has a leadership quality where he's like, I'm— because you can be wrong. Like, you can be over-resistant or, or, or just obstructive. That's another trenchant right. question. I think um, one was just, I refuse to look away. Right. Now, a second piece that's really important to this story, this is the only spy story mm-hmm. in, in the book. And if mm-hmm. any of these get optioned as films, this is the one that has all the dramatic tension <laughs> right. because, you know, he becomes a double agent. Here's the, here's the, here's, but here's the hook. His brother-in-law, he's from a very well-connected, he's the only person in the book that's from, you know, really very a well-connected family. Mm-hmm. And his, his brother-in-law, a, a gentleman named Hans Donjani, was assistant secretary to the Minister of Justice. So he was already inside right. Nazi government. So he had inside information. So mm-hmm. years before we'd get to the Wannesey Conference in the early 40s that mm-hmm. codified the final solution, right. the extermination of European mm-hmm. Jewry, Donjani knew what was going on. He knew, he saw the writing, and he could tell Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer saw mm-hmm. with unmistakable— So he had good information. He had—there you go. Mm-hmm. Very good information. Right. And he refused to say, turn away from it. Right, right, exactly. Or not believe it. Or, or not, not believe it, exactly. Right, right, which I think a lot of people—it's oh, not going to be that bad. They're it, not, they don't really mean it. That's right. always the They one. don't really mean it. They don't really exactly. mean it. I always am like—I remember when— um, Tech was upset uh, every time Trump turned around and screwed them, essentially, after promising, not, like, saying he wouldn't. I said he said something set, like, on immigration 76 times on the trail. And and they were like, well, yeah, but he doesn't mean it. And I said, but he said it 76 times. Like, don't you think he meant it? Well, it was just campaigning. And I was like, 
that's a lot of times to say it. Like, and of course, he's followed through on what he said, which I think. I know, Muslim why travel ban, two months in office, right? Why wouldn't he? He said it. Like, I, I don't like, I don't assume cynicism at all times by people. And what was interesting is the is the, the willingness, and I like them to believe that it was a lie on the campaign trail, which I thought it wasn't. And I said he made a promise to his voters. Like he said it, he seems to believe it. He has a historical predilection for this. So, uh, it, it was what was interesting is they, they that they wouldn't even entertain that he meant what he said. Right. And and I said, you know, it's the famous uh, Maya Angelou quote, when someone shows you who are the first time, believe them. Like, and I believed them. Like, and so I wasn't so mad at him as they, I was with the tech leaders who continually kept dismissing it, which was interesting. Um, so let's talk about um, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Obviously, he's such an iconic right. figure. Um, obviously, so much crisis and ending in the tragedy. Um Talk about those uh, leaderships, because he did push through things that he was even uncomfortable with speaking of. Very much so. I tried to, I tried to add to the already very, crowd, very, crowded. very crowded field. Yeah. I mean, this could have been a book on Lincoln, you know, in, yeah. a, in a fit of humility. 90. It did not become that. The world doesn't need another book. But here's what's new in the story for mm-hmm. for your listeners about Lincoln. One is the emotional experience of what did it feel mm-hmm. like to be to live Abraham Lincoln's right. life walking down those halls and not sleeping in the White House. Right. Um, that's it's you know it's extraordinarily wrenching for him and what many of your listeners may not know is that he at times despaired so much that he he said on several occasions and it worried enough of his cabinet ministers at one point that they took action that he he felt ready to kill himself mm-hmm. so i mean this was this was he part was of the story is how do you keep on keeping on mm-hmm. in the midst of a, the perfect storm um i think what's really interesting from the the standpoint of a of of the kind of things you talk about in recode is thinking about lincoln not as commander in chief not as the great abolitionist mm-hmm. not as the you know the 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 brilliant political calculator thinking about Abraham Lincoln as a change a, a change leader who articulated the change over and over again. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we don't see in Silicon Valley and we don't see in Washington mm-hmm. among all the turbulence mm-hmm. is leaders that are willing to say, let me frame the stakes of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Here's the moment at which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Here's where we want to be headed through this turbulence. Mm-hmm. Here's what's at stake. Here's what the trade-offs are. And here's why ultimately they're worth making. Mm-hmm. Right, whether we're talking about the negative effects of kids being on t- doing mm-hmm. too much with technology, or we're talking about a globalizing world in which America can't be an isolationist on mm-hmm. immigration policy any longer, mm-hmm. those days are over. So here was someone who stepped up to that plate in letters, in speeches, in all kinds of forums, and communicated the large sweep right. of the change that was tremendously important right. to holding the the do, nation do together you know during consistent? the war. Trump, Trump is consistent. See, that's he he's is. absolutely On consistent. Now it's twitchy and twittery and short, but it's consistent everywhere, every place. It never changes. And what's and what's interesting how the press is always can't believe it hasn't changed. And I'm like, but that you know, it's what you, but it's what you just said about Trump's policy on immigration. I mean, mm-hmm. he is what as he appears, we can now make our make our opinions and make our bets on him acting from that Well, it was interesting as people say he can't, he won't, he's not going to do it. He doesn't really believe it. I'm like, why? Where's the evidence otherwise? Because it seems like he's using his platform very effectively to continue no matter, because he, he doesn't actually have shame. That's why. I he think has people, no shame. People, and that's fine. That's, you know, people seem to be angry about that. And I'm like, I don't know. He just seems to do what he says he's going to do. So why are you consistently surprised or, or clutching your pearls by by uh, someone who says the same thing over and over and over again. It's a little bit though, like, why were the, why, why were, it's the, the, what we were just talking about, why were people at other moments of right. great wrenching change at the top right. of a nation, right, right 
unable to see well, think, what, what was hap- coming down from a leader. Right. I think one of the things that you're talking about is the articulation. I think probably one leader in Silicon Valley does it is Elon Musk. He does repeat things over and over again about AI, or he doesn't get off of a theme, or he doesn't, you know, he That's continues to, to say the same thing, or in different ways and in different modes, or when he's announcing things. So some of it is marketing for himself and for his companies, mostly for his companies, or he does these dramatic, like, I'm only going to take... $50 billion if I succeed or whatever the heck he's doing on any moment, which is a lot about marketing. But it is about articulation of a thought process that stays consistent. I think so. And, and to, to your point, I think it's also about where does this fit into the larger sweep? So, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, if he talks about space travel, he's talking about in the context, right, mm-hmm. of where we are as a global village right mm-hmm. now and why this is important. Very few people that we have access to in our, you know, crowded media moment mm-hmm. are, are at, at a governing level, our leadership level, are doing that. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly well, important. Well, isn't it hard because the the media is so—not the media, the mediums are so twitchy and need to change so quickly that nobody can sustain a, 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 a cogent thought for yeah, very just, long. Yeah, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we right. shouldn't be doing right. it. Right. It is hard. Right, right. And, I, and, I, and the same thing as making it twitchy makes it more important to give us some context. Yeah, yeah. just the other—when I—because I've been really tisky at um, um, tech about its responsibility for a year. And I, someone was like, "Can you? when are you going to stop that? I'm like, never. How about never? I'm going to keep stopping. And it's a really interesting um, phenomenon is that. But then I did feel pressure. Maybe I should stop that and move on to another thing. And then I'm like, no, I think I won't. But it was. it's an interesting question of being able to stick to a thematic thing to, in today's Twitch. I'd be interested to see how Abraham Lincoln would react in a Twitter universe. Well, you know, he was in his own Twitter moment. The yeah. Telegraph was a kind of yep. Twitter or, mm-hmm. or smartphone at the right. time. I mean, he, he what people forget about Abraham Lincoln, all these executives when I mm-hmm. talk about Lincoln and the leadership lessons of his presidency say, but he had no social media. But he did have the equivalent of social media. Right. He is control central. The stuff that right. is pouring into him every single day. And I'm not just talking about media. I'm talking about every single Telegraph from the right. front. Right. Right. Hundreds of constituents walking through. Right. This man is in, is worrying about so- getting socks to the troops, right. you know, in 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 Virginia. As much as he's worried about how in the hell is he going to avoid impeachment here, he's in right. 1864. Right. As to whether he should sue for a negotiated peace, this guy is besieged by by the equivalent by of social media. Yeah. And still, to your point, he stays on message, so mm-hmm. to speak, over and I would save the union. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, and by by 1862, it's going to be a union without slavery, and that consists. Consistency is so important for a nation literally yep. wrenched apart and, and by you, the carnage of the Civil and War. And if you look back to, I'm, I'm still reading forever the book on Hamilton, the actual book, not the musical. Right. And there, the, the amount of um, writing and things in newspapers they do back and forth under uh, Greek names often was fascinating. And the, and the correspondence was, ma- like, it seems even harder to do those. And it was all about persuasion and and putting your stakes out there. Like, it was. So let's go back to what you said at the very beginning. We think we're brand new having mm-hmm. these outlets to mm-hmm. communicate, right, a, a particular position or a particular viewpoint. We're not. I right. Mean, the pamphlets that really define the right. pamphlet wars that you're talking about that yeah. helped define the framework of this country mm-hmm. in the 18, in the in the 1770s and 70s days were not so dissimilar, right? Right, to what people are doing today. today they, absolutely. Which, and harder in a lot of ways. So uh, what was the lesson, of, if you had to take away from, I'm going to go to each of them, Abraham Lincoln's yep. leadership. So I think consistencies. The, 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 a very edible lesson lesson for for your listeners Mm -hmm. is when the stakes are high and you're emotionally hot under the collar, do nothing Mm -hmm. right away. Don't hit send. Don't hit post. Don't hit tweet. 
don't do nothing. And there's all kinds of examples of Lincoln having enough emotional control, even when he was really upset, mm-hmm. to do nothing and it actually making a huge benefit. A hundred percent. So do nothing in the moment. Right. Just control yourself enough to wait. Right. I think that's a really powerful lesson. Right. Uh, Ernest Shackleton's most powerful lesson, again, very accessible today. This is explorer today is, who got caught up this, in— I'm sorry, this explorer. He's got to get 27 men home and all he's got is three rowboats. In the, in the Arctic, he's, right? He's off the coast of Antarctica. Antarctica, He's right, got okay. three rowboats and some mm-hmm. canned goods. Right. And rifles to kill seals. Right. And they got nothing else. They got right. no Twitter. They got no ways. Not real good. They got jackets. no Instagram to take pictures and show people <laughs> where they are. And he's and he's there. They're on the ice for well over a year. Yeah. Right. Uh, floating on icebergs. Mm-hmm. And what he learns and what he demonstrates over and over again, over and over again that de- that determines the success of his mission because it keeps his men believing in him back to leadership and in their own ability to survive this is every single day he shows up out of his tent or late at night even if he didn't sleep even if he had like you know six hours of oh my god I have no idea how I'm going to get home mm-hmm. and get this done he shows up in service to the mission every day he says Keep your things packed, lads. We are going to go home. Mm-hmm. And so that ability, right, to, to, again, not disgorge the leaders, not disgorge his own Fear. anxieties real time, turned out to be critical to keeping his followers mm-hmm. believing that they could do the impossible. Mm-hmm. So, so man, it, you know, show up in service to your mission. Mm-hmm. A little forbearance, a mm-hmm. little control serves you well. I think the most important lesson of Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, abolitionist. Right, escaped slave, abolitionist. A contemporary of Abraham Lincoln. New Lincoln. Lincoln could never have done what he did in ending slavery without all the groundwork at the grassroots level mm-hmm. that Douglass had been doing mm-hmm. for years on the abolitionist circuit. Douglass's most important lesson is when you're really, really scared, take one step into the fear. Mm-hmm. Into the fear. Right. Not away from it. Don't mm-hmm. duck it. Don't pull out your phone mm-hmm. and try and scroll it away. Move into it. Mm-hmm. That's a really... What's the fear he moved into? Well, his fear, and it's a very defining one at various points, is one, I'm going to be recaptured in, in one really telling, pivotal, uh, critical moment in his life. The overseer is going to kill me by beating me because he that was a real fear, mm-hmm. and he and he decides to confront the overseer, and it really defines the rest mm-hmm. of his life. Um, I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be killed from writing my autobiography. I'm going to be recaptured. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of personal fears, and then the most important pervasive fear, intellectually and morally, is I won't be able to accomplish this. I won't be able to get the incredibly you know entrenched roots of slavery ripped up and eliminated in mm-hmm. my lifetime. And then after that, I won't be able to get the vote for women, which is where which is where he turns after the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery is passed. For for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think the most important lesson is you can make yourself a great deal. Explain great. who Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This, this, the, the, the German again. We'll, the German right. Nazi resistor right. who has to right. who, who finds his life and his position becoming more and more dangerous mm-hmm. and more and precarious, more precarious as he goes. And it's important to remember he was a very young man when he's doing this. He's born in 1906, so when the Nazis come to power, he's 24, mm-hmm. right? When the First World War breaks right. out, right, he's 33. He's a very young man. And so he's developing his muscles of moral courage, mm-hmm. and he's doing it not in one fell swoop. Leaders aren't supermen or superwomen. Mm-hmm. They're made bit by bit. We get stronger. We get better. And so he's developing it, and he keeps working to get braver and writing about how difficult that is. But we can all get braver, you know, if you will, moment by moment, if we keep on, as Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant have written in Option Mm -hmm. B, working on our muscles Mm -hmm. of moral courage and resilience. So that's a really important lesson. And I think the lesson 
of Rachel Carson, who is environmental. the environmentalist, whose book in, published in 1962, Silent Spring, is arguably one of the most important books of the 20th century because it, more than any other single act, uh, launched the modern environmental movement. I think the—and she's battling, as many of your listeners probably won't know, metastasizing breast cancer as she mm-hmm. writes this book. So she's racing the clock mm-hmm. to try and finish before, she, before her life ends. I think one of her most important lessons is how she understood that a lot of your life, you're not necessarily making a huge, bold splash in the external world. You are gathering. So I have this whole section in the book about the gathering seasons of our lives Mm -hmm. when we're learning and investing in ourselves and not necessarily checking an item off the bucket list. You can't you can't do really important good things if you don't spend some time gathering. Mm-hmm. And I worry that in our twitchy moment, mm-hmm. we're so impatient right. to have X or Y externally right now that we're not laying the groundwork within ourselves to become the kind of people we need to become to do the worthy right. things. Right. You don't get those moments. It's interesting. Gates always does this book week and stuff like that. And I'm actually going away for a week to do that, to just think. That's quietly. gathering, right? Yeah. I'm, I have to go to a place that doesn't have internet because I just can't. Well, fine. I'm addicted. You know what I mean? Like I have to remove myself from that equation, which is going to be hard. But you, I bet you'll come back feeling like Hopefully. you've gathered a whole or bunch real, of good stuff or in Or really you. well slept, I think, one, yeah. one or the other, which is That's fine. That's part of gathering, too. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we get back, we're talking to Nancy Keene, a historian at Harvard Business School, about leadership. Her new book is called Forging Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. There's a lot of turbulent times right now. I want to go through some qualities of leadership that you think are necessary now, some of the ones that, that some of the, since this is a tech show, what some of the tech leaders have shown and what they need to do, given how much they're under siege lately and deservedly so, um, and how they leadership their way out of it. Today's show is brought to you by Brook Linen. They want to upgrade your nightly routine and help you feel more well-rested every day. You spend a third of your life in your sheets. Better sheets mean better sleep. Brook Linen sells high-quality sheets without the crazy high markup you might get in stores. It's the fastest-growing bedding brand in the world. The sheets come in a wide variety of colors and patterns. You can mix and match to complement any decor. These are the best sheets ever. You have to try them. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code RECODE at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code RECODE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code RECODE. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. That's me. Yes, here you are still. Hi. Hi there. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, who did we talk to this week? We talked to the Daily Beast's Taylor Lawrence about the world of YouTube, YouTube. influencers. Influencers. Uh, Taylor, what makes a good influencer these days? And what makes a bad one? <laughs> bad one being outrageous and I guess, I don't know, filming dead bodies. Uh, good one, I guess, being young and doing crazy pranks. Good meaning that you'll get an audience. Uh, yeah, I guess being outrageous and insane as possible. Yeah, yeah. Is that a good thing, Taylor? Uh, it's not a good thing, but... <laughs> It'll get you views for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then we talked about how they make money, how they don't. Yeah, make we money, talked about how they make money. Uh, we talked about the merch strategy. We talked merch. about yeah, their crazy lives and yeah. 
We did. We even strategized around uh, two embarrassed asks upcoming merch. Yes, exactly. Taylor Lawrence watches YouTube, so we don't have to. Thank you for that, Taylor. Yes, thank anyway, you. it was a great discussion. We have to go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Nancy Keene. She is a historian at the Harvard Business School. Her new book is about leadership. It's called Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And it examines the rise of five leaders who had to overcome crisis, including Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Rachel Carson and others. Um, so w- w- there's all kinds of ways to become a leader. Um, let's talk, focus first on, te- on, on the general uh, thing. Are there any commonalities or not? I don't think there are, but maybe there are. Maybe there's certain... Uh, qualities that you need? Because there's a different quality from being an entrepreneur to starting a company, which is not leadership, probably Mm -hmm. persistence, ability to say yes when others are saying no. You know, there's there's certain commonalities of entrepreneurship, correct? Absolutely, right? There's, you know, how you figure out what are are good calculated risks to take, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, colleague... Luck is some of it. Yeah, like, and some of it's just you know opportunity meeting preparation, as Oprah Winfrey said over and over <laughs> again. You know, a colleague of mine once said that entrepreneurs are defined by being opportunity driven, where so many other people are resource constrained. Right. In terms we of can't do that. What they're listening to and thinking about, right. or as Estee Lauder, the cosmetics entrepreneur, once said. <laughs> No is just another word for how and when. Right. And that's a lot of what you're talking about right. when you talk about, you know, the, the kind of resilience and, and stick-to-itiveness well, I think of entrepreneurs. people in Silicon Valley love the Thomas Edison quote. It's a little too much. Is you know, I, I haven't failed 500 times. I've just found, you know, I mean, I haven't, I've found 500 ways it didn't work. I didn't, exactly, I didn't fail. right? And right. so that kind of stick-to-itiveness is really important. But but when we're talking about leadership, I, I'm like, I'm on your page. I don't really talk a lot about common aspects. I think there are three threads that connect these stories in this book, and I think some of those threads are relevant to the Valley or to Silicon Valley and tech. One is that each of these people discovered um, or stumbled into or, you know, knew it from the time they were young, like Douglas being a slave and teaching himself to read, which he Mm -hmm. did because it was illegal to teach slaves to read. He did Mm -hmm. in a very ingenious entrepreneurial way. Um, They discover some kind of mighty purpose. Mm -hmm. And the purpose over time becomes something more than I'm going to make a lot of money or I'm going to get— It can't be money. Pardon? It can't ever be money. It, it, it can't—the mighty purpose no is leader, not about money. No and leader it, I've ever, real leader— and No real leader matter. ever settles for—it's about money, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're really defined by—and um, or, or, shaped by and motivated, especially in your darkest moments, by the power of the, the mm-hmm. purpose, the right. North Star you're headed towards, it can't be money. It has to be something that involves a larger group of people. And, yeah. And as Martin Buber, the 20th century German philosopher, once said, a, per- a mighty purpose is always about the movement from I to thou, mm-hmm. right? From me right. and my agenda to something bigger and more transcendent that's that's about other people. So the first thing is you got to find that. Yeah, I think and, a lot of people do think it's about money or ego, which are both the same thing as far as They I are exactly tell. the same and thing. And one of the things, I was talking to someone who thinks of themselves as a financial leader and is not. It's just such a small-minded person. And, and they were driving me crazy about something, and I said, it's an old saying, I said, you're so poor, all you have is money. And because they didn't have a bigger idea of anything, like in terms of involving people. And I I found it really interesting that he thought of himself as a leader, which was, you know, I think he was super disturbed when I said that. Well, then you wonder, like, how much of of that kind of 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 behavior or or downloaded thinking is about how 
we try and justify what mm-hmm. we've done and mm-hmm. what we haven't done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so struck. I do a lot of coaching. I've been at the Harvard Business School for 26 years. Mm-hmm. You you quickly see with our our alumni, they're either getting bigger after they hit 45 in spirit mm-hmm. and, and, and like what they're up to, or they're getting smaller by degrees and figuring out what are the mental gymnastics I to have take. to construct to, to get to, to, to justify yeah. what I'm doing. So, so one is larger sense of purpose. A larger sense of purpose. A second That's really critical aspect. Often because of a crisis. Often because they they find themselves in a crisis and discover it, right? Right. right. Um, or or they're in a crisis. They've got this purpose out there hovering, and they're like, "I'm going to get through this by hook or crook because that cri- that purpose is important." And so mm-hmm. it becomes like a kind of you know you know rope they grab onto mm-hmm. um, and and you know put in the mountain to climb up with. It's and then they infect other people mm-hmm. with the sense of purpose because it's personally meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. I think a second aspect that we don't talk about very much we talk about EQ, but I'm not, you know, emotional quotient, right. emotional right. intelligence. I like the term emotional awareness because emotional awareness, awareness is about like how you you lead yourself, mm-hmm. right? How you get up every day and and define, you know, the hundreds of decisions you'll make that if you're in a position of any kind of authority, other people are taking cues from. Mm-hmm. We forget. I right. mean, a lot of people forget, especially in the Valley, I think, mm-hmm. or maybe in lots of new businesses, that when you're in a position of the kind of authority that many of the people you talk with and work with are, all eyes are on you, mm-hmm. right? So you got to show up, and all those little choices you make are things that people are taking cues from. Right. You know, including, like, how you're dealing with the person at Starbucks or how you're— Even how, bad behavior. Does. How you're yeah. handling your assistants in the office so or, or engaging with them. So I think a really important piece is what kind of emotional awareness do you have about yourself, what you're up to— Right, what kind of control you have, and and how much hum- of your own humanity, mm-hmm. right, defined in benevolent, right, higher road terms, are you harnessing each day as part of that awareness to to work with the right. people and right. make the people capable of doing harder, better things than they could do on their own. Right. So I think a big piece of it is emotional awareness. A third aspect never talked about, as far as I can tell, in the the, the zip codes that you and I both operate in and the mm-hmm. overlap therein is. All of these people made time to write their thoughts down, mm-hmm. not necessarily to tweet them out, mm-hmm. but and not necessarily as a to-do list. They wrote. Now, they had typewriters in a few instances, but they wrote, and they wrote because writing proved to be a way to parse out their thoughts and mm-hmm. their own emotions in a way that helped them think mm-hmm. more clearly. Right. So one of the things we're not teaching anybody no. in schools of leadership or executive seminars is writing is a tool for helping you think right. more clearly, and you can use it to lead yourself and your organization. Yeah, yeah. So, I worry that in our, you know, our, our world of emojis, mm-hmm. that we're losing the ability yep. to, to do the hard that. stuff, I which is to think yeah. and write. Yeah, I just realized I'm not writing as much. I'm tweeting more. But the stuff I'm tweeting, I could write. I could, you know what I mean? I could actually, which is interesting because they're, they're actually interesting thoughts. I just, it's a way of getting out ideas. Almost it it is. And, something. and here's another kicker for, for, the, for the tech industry. There's now beginning to be pretty good research. If you write with a paper and pencil mm-hmm. or a pen and paper, your thought processes are different than if you tap. Ah, and you're, you actually turn out to be a little bit more creative. Yeah. A little bit more. I'm you discover more. <laughs> Think about it. Right? I don't do it because I hate writing. I hate I have bad handwriting. And well, I but I'm not trying to convert I, you. I'm, I'm suggesting that there's something interesting. And I've, I've done I just this bought a, a typewriter. 
Pardon? I just bought a typewriter. Well, I, wait, I, bet you, I bet it's a little different. I good, I'm good on a typewriter better yeah. than a, on a keyboard. On yeah. A computer keyboard. That's why I bought the typewriter because it slows me down. It's slow. That's the point. It slows you down, so you pull things out of cr- nooks and crannies within yourself right. that you might not have pulled out. Right. And I make mistakes I can't correct. That's the. Other. And those are useful because then yes. you go back and you say, yep. "Oh no, I, I wanted to use it in this way." Right. Yeah. It's hard to do on a typewriter. You can't. You can't go back. You, you can't can, go back. But you can't. But yeah. you can. You know. So let's talk a little bit about who you think are great leaders. Like I was thinking as you were talking about this, I was thinking of. Um, I'm going to just use tech as the yeah. ones I'm familiar with, but um, uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix seems to have defined things really clearly, and he's stuck with them. Um, uh, other leaders, I do think Mark Zuckerberg's someone who does evolve. Whether you agree with him a lot, and believe me, I've been super uh, critical of some things they've done on Facebook, but I do think he tries to evolve it. You can see it in his essays and his struggling with the problems he's created, his company has created. Um, I don't, that doesn't forgive them, but it certainly is an interesting, someone playing out publicly. Um, Bezos doesn't communicate that much, actually. Much? He does it by action, which is an interesting way to do it. Um, is, Jobs, obviously, was iconic and mysterious and fantastic. And that's how, you know. And, and seems and, happier giving away his money than he did making oh, oh, it, at least to look at his jobs, face. Jobs didn't give away. It's I'm, Gates, sorry, I'm sorry, Gates. Gates excuse yes, me. he is. Oh, Steve, oh, I know a lot more about Steve Jobs. Yeah. I'm very... Right. He didn't give away much money. He didn't give away much money at all. Right. Very, very brilliant right. and driven and, mm-hmm. I think, you know, in many ways expensive human being. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he I think, got better as, uh, you know, people always talk about his illness, but most of the things that he created that are now memorable are happening when he was dying, um, which I thought was interesting. That's I, really interesting. That's a very, I've never thought about You're absolutely years, right. Every single critical yeah. thing yeah. happened then. I, he did a lot before that, but the real things, the no, big things. No, 2005 afterwards. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right, Carol. That's really interesting. Yeah. And he also didn't think he was going to die, too. That, that was, nope. even though it was clear he was. It, it, one of the questions we asked him at a code conference that the, in the last year of his life was, I think I asked him, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And everyone, sharp intake of breath, because he looked really sickly. He, he had to have been the most lively person of anyone in the room the sickest person, but the oh. most lively, which was interesting. And he was immediately like, well, television, television's a real problem. And he was, he was a- acting as if he wow. had all the time in the world, which I thought was, it was either the most incredible, um, overwhelming uh, lie to yourself, uh-huh. or he really did or think Or it was that. genuine. It was genuine. I, it, you couldn't lie to yourself in the way he looked and stuff, but he was the most That's alive person I've ever seen, like in that, of those leaders, which was interesting. He had lots of faults and things like that, that he, that he, um, that he had. But one of the ones I thought that was, you know, people would always say the reason he was successful is because he was heartless. I think the reason he was successful is because he was all heart, which I think is different. And that manifested itself in a similar way because really all heart makes can, can make you tough, can make you, because you have to have it happen. Um, but let's talk about what leadership, leadership qualities that don't work. Uh, you know, I've been writing a lot about Uber and others. So talk about, in that, it seems like, one, it was a failure of leadership. <sighs> and at the same time, to me, and I'm very obsessed with this right now, is the enablers around the leader. Absolutely. Um, same thing with Trump. Like, I, I'm not so much bothered by Trump as, say, the RNC person today saying, you know, so what if he asked the FBI director? She's normalizing that in a way that's really disturbing how he voted. Like, I'm not surprised he did that. I'm surprised others are supporting it. And so the same thing with Uber or, or, or disasters in Silicon Valley. It's the enablers around people. Yeah, so that, that, I think that's an astute point. You know, many years ago, an entrepreneur named Jonathan Bush, who founded a tech health company called Athena Health, mm-hmm. was a student yeah. of mine. And he, Bush, he, he's Bush's uh, nephew. Uh, he's, I think he's the cousin of cousin 43 and the nephew of 41. John asked me to join his board, and, and he said— 
and this is to your point about irritants at the top of the of the podcast, Carrie. He said you've got to have people who will flip you the bird. Mm-hmm. You simply do. So mm-hmm. you can grow. So the you can see things mm-hmm. you wouldn't see otherwise, and so you can keep, keeps you honest. And what we're ta- what you're talking about, and I agree with in the case of Uber, is a company that at least from the outside did not appear to have enough people right mm-hmm. saying to Travis and what or, or saying who to had Trump, some really strong you, this quality. will not fly. Yeah, this cannot fly. Are you right. kidding, Mr. President? Right. Are you kidding, Travis? And we didn't see that. Right. And so no one called them to account. And mm-hmm. I agree with you. Like, have they, I want to say that, I want to shake the, the the RNC person and some of Trump's handlers and say, have you no shame? Right, right. At, at the same time, it's not, it, what's interesting is there's certain things they were getting from, tra- let's stick with Travis, but it, they, they were getting from him, which was the high growth, the aggression and everything else, so that they sublimated the things that would later kill the this situation, which was interesting, and I, I was one. I always think about what were they like when we were, we wrote about. Um, they had a medical files of uh, a rape victim, and at the time, like when I saw it, I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Like, like, and and they were like, "Yeah, I know," and like it was as if I like slapped them awake, you know. And then they started. People were like, "How did you get those stories?" I'm like, "The people were ashamed they didn't do anything at the time." That's who called me. Finally, that's who I got to. And so, and it was all of them because it was as if I slapped them out of a stupor. They knew at the time it was a problem, but something happened and then they were embarrassed and wanted to make up for it. Well, but that's 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 happening in our country too, right? right? Right. Especially in the halls of national government where we know that there are things that are are terribly detrimental things to the democracy, the the, the sinews, right? Right. The the blood and muscle of our country that are happening right now. And and, and who's speaking up? Who will will speak the truth is what you're you're really talking about in a a small circle of of top executives. It's incredibly important. But at the same time, you don't want to be pearl clutching about it. No, 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 that's right. But but anyone that's gotten to that level understands to use your word about Bezos deafness. Mm-hmm. This is a, th- telling the truth in those kind of circles is not about right. you know holding the cross and mm-hmm. walking to Damascus and mm-hmm. having getting hit, knocked off a horse. It's right. about a kind of deafness. Mm-hmm. It's also about having a group of leaders see that the that the road to riches and sustainability might not be paved in hard charging mm-hmm. aggression. Right, that there are alternative routes. Or it might have to change during the time. Right. Um, we have just a little more time. I want to talk about a couple more things around yeah. leadership. Um, when I think about the successful organizations, one, I, I think a lot about cohesion. Cohesion, that there's a leader, typically a single leader, or maybe one or two, often two in tech, actually. Mm-hmm. There's often someone yeah. that balances the other person. Um, it is often two, actually. Um, it's two in most companies, two I in think, many companies. <laughs> Yeah, and two. Um, one that doesn't get as much attention, the exactly. other uh, who does because they're more interesting. Um, but but the cohesion around a group of people, they don't have to like each other. Yeah. They like I was thinking of Google. I don't think they all liked each other. They did for a while, and then they didn't because people get tired and stuff. But the cohesion they had was really important. Same thing at Facebook. I think you see a lot of cohesion among them. The ones that are not successful, are not cohesive at the beginning. But what happens with cohesion is agreement in the extreme where nobody doubts anybody else. And so there isn't, as I said, an irritant. So can you talk about how you change leadership styles over time? It seems like people get to be dancing monkeys and what works, 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 works. So someone in the leadership team has to be able to say, we're swapping out now. Mm-hmm. Recognize, right, right, that we're, you know, that we're, 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 we're seeing no evil, hearing no evil, or whatever. We're, we're drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Someone has to say, we got to swap, change the beverage So how menu. do you create that in an organization? Um, you surround yourself with at least some kind of informal, right, 
consigliere's, if you're CEO or your COO, that are outside the company that are keeping you honest. Mm-hmm. And I know all kinds of leaders across different businesses that have risen to positions of power, partly because they had their own informal forum, board of directors, mm-hmm. three or four people you trust, mm-hmm. that you're bouncing stuff off on, and they're people that can put those irritants in mm-hmm. your head, and then you can bring them deftly, but seriously, into the corner office. Mm-hmm. you got to be able to do that, especially in a world like tech that's changing all the time, and in which, you know, today's, you know, path to the North Star is, is, is likely to be obsolete in a year and a half. Right, right. But why do they miss that? I mean, what's interesting is I've noticed about people that I covered like since the beginning, they suddenly become so smart because they're rich or because they're successful. And and it's a really interesting thing because then you, very few, although some of them do remain the same, um, but I think what happens is they get, I, I use an expression again, I use it, they get licked up and down all day and yeah. therefore believe it. So, but again, we're back to emotional awareness. So think about someone like Lincoln, right? Mm-hmm. So he writes in, in, a, in a very interesting letter in the middle of the war when someone's saying, lash out at this opponent. He says, what I deal in is too vast for malice. I see. Wow. There's someone who's Woo! like, I know what I'm doing. I am not going to show up, mm-hmm. right, in the arrogant cloak with mm-hmm. the orb and scepter right. in terms of how I think about myself. you got to lead yourself in a way that keeps you you know, in some sense, grounded mm-hmm. and, and 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 not believing all the stories of you know this of sycophants and all the, eating all that sycophantic pie what, that comes your what way. What are the qualities? Because I, I am reading this Hamilton biography, and I think the most important person that sticks out here is not Hamilton, who could be petty. Jefferson, a hundred percent petty. Oh my Madison, God. mean Jefferson, mean, mean. too. Washington. Washington. There's someone. There's a perfect example. What happened? Right? What did he have that caused? Because he uh, he saved the republic. He because he had a sense that who I am and how I show up, literally from no, we're not going to call call the president his highness, mm-hmm. right? He says that it, we're a democracy. But beyond that, every, on the day to day level, how he balanced out people was really difficult. I can't. He, it was so touch but, and go. But that, I can't imagine that in your world, in the world of tech, mm-hmm. there isn't that requirement in some sense. You're dealing with such egos, such brill, such such high emo, you know, left side brain development without the commensurate right side brain development. You know, great leaders, real leaders like the kind we're both we're both agreeing on mm-hmm. are, are are men and women who are like. I'm grounded. I my values, my character, my competence are are aligned. Now, like you know, you're going to need to get along with Mr. Jeff. I mean, he played peacemaker all the time, right. Washington between right. Jefferson among Jefferson Madison. And didn't have and to. He didn't so, have to. Right. Except that he recognized back to cohesion that if they were going to try and figure out the foundations of this young struggling country, mm-hmm. we couldn't be warring among ourselves all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So I think what, the single answer to how did Washington do this was. A great sense of my my own emotional awareness he, in, in terms he wouldn't have used. He didn't use those words. Harness to we got to get this republic ship a bigger, a bigger off picture, the ground. Picture. All right. So to finish up, qualities of leadership that are I think critical. And I hate to do commonalities because no. I don't think there's the case. But name through. Two things that are critical and two things that are deadly to leadership. And All right, let me start up. with the leadership no-no. So great leaders, real leaders, right, don't throw their people, their mission, their office under the bus, mm-hmm. right? Because you create a team that is running scared and not willing to make to make serious bets if you do that, right? Not to mention the They're friction scared. and divisiveness and toxicity of that. So you don't throw your people under the bus. And you don't ultimately— Right, demean the very office you're in. Mm-hmm. Right, demean the, the the position of what of, of where 
you are in the sense not of how, what's our stock price or how many people did we hire this year, or what's our market cap and what's our market share, but in the sense of we're building something that has a serious reason for being and we're doing it for more than just our own pocketbooks and for more than just this month. Mm-hmm. So the ability to kind of hold on to the... To, to the vast future that Lincoln talked about, mm-hmm. those are you don't you can't be you can't be ripping those kind of things. You're, you're, right. What you're doing apart right. in, in a or demeaning it. So those are two really important leadership okay. no-nos. What a what a great leaders always do. How do they always show up? I think this sense of humility that we're getting at with Washington and Lincoln, mm-hmm. a sense of humility, you know, in the sense that I'm I'm part of something bigger and I'm allying myself and, and, and motivating people for something worthy that's larger than just this second and this moment, this win. That the, Here's the crazy irony about that, about leaders discovering that and, 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 and unleashing the power. Leaders that are really doing that move from I to thou I mean, you can see a little bit of this in Satya Nadella at Microsoft, right? We're here for a bigger deal. Mm -hmm. And when you discover that in yourself and can light it up in yourself, you get really powerful in a a deeply, Mm -hmm. right, appealing, contagious way. So the irony of all this, like, you know, licking them up and down and aren't Mm -hmm. we great and, you know, the smartest kid in the room is, it's actually less powerful than the other way of being. So great leaders unlock that. And the second thing I think that real leaders do is they understand that, that other people around them are waiting to be unlocked themselves. That's right. You play a role unlocking others. Yep. You're not just doing this for the company. You're doing it for all the people around yep. you that you can help be better and stronger. And if and if you're working from those two places, yep. you're running on a good gas tank. Yep, I agree with that. That's a very important thing is doing that. I think about it all the time when I want to be petty. <laughs> when I want, you know where I'm angry, I sometimes. And I think one of I think the strongest thing that you said here, um, and we've got to finish up, is the do nothing thing. I thought about that the other day. I was going to do something, and I was mad, and I just was like, I'm just not going to do anything. And what happened? It worked out just fine. <laughs> it's not in my nature not to do anything. It's not in a lot of our natures. You know, you're like, I'm like Doesn't a mean it's not the right thing I'm to do. I'm going to clean up your room. Like I, and I think it, another thing was with my kid too. Same thing. I mean, he made a mess, and I just was like, I'm going to do nothing. It's I let him clean it up, and it worked a hundred percent better. You know what I mean? Like it was interesting. At the other times, I do intervene most of the time because <laughs> I do know better, Nancy. I don't know if you know that, but <laughs> that's my leadership style. Benevolent fascism is how I work it out. And you can write your next book on it. No, that's a good title. A, a case study of Kara Swisher, Benevolent Fascism. Anyway, it was great talking to you. This is really important stuff, and I think leadership is more important than ever, the right kind of leadership. We didn't even get into Me Too or anything else, but uh, that's a whole nother Whole nother moment. Yeah, yeah. Right now, in Silicon, uh, right now in Silicon Valley, all these leaders are praising China because they get things done and they work harder and they, you know, the niceties of sexual harassment investigations they don't have to worry about. And of course, the New York Times had a great story about that today. Um, but it's a whole nother topic. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about those things. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, uh, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes. You can find more than 175 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask a Along with Lauren Good of The Verge, we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.